I sat in the back right under the balloon thing. Uh, it wasn't a balloon thing uh, a few weeks ago. It was two weeks ago on a Wednesday night, and I witnessed my favorite sermon that's ever been preached in this room. I've, for seven years, I've been here. I've listened to every sermon. We've hired preachers to come from far away. We've paid them lots of money to preach here. We've had guests. I've done a lot of the talking up here, so a lot of it is my preaching. Uh, but uh, two weeks ago, I sat in the back right there, and my little girl sat, stood right here, and she preached the sermon. She's in ninth grade this year, and in our ministry, LUG, we have our high school kids lead the middle school kids, and it was her time, and she preached on being alive in Christ, which is what Keyshawn just talked about, uh, and I, I don't remember a lot of what was being said. I don't know that it was the most amazing sermon that's ever been preached in Christendom, but for me, as a dad, it was the greatest sermon that's ever been preached in this room. Uh, a few years back, a few years back, we, the, the Grace Family of Churches, were a part of a family of churches, and, and the Grace Family of Churches has a thing in January called the Grace Summit. I will encourage all of you to go. It's an amazing weekend. It's usually the third weekend in January. You can mark your calendars now. We gather on Saturday, and we just worship together, all the family. So it's churches from Washington, D.C., churches from Missouri, churches from Atlanta, churches from other parts of Atlanta, churches from Atlanta that feels really far from us, like all the churches gathering together and just worshiping together, kind of casting some vision for the future and, and praying about what's next. Two years ago, as we gathered for the summit, we gathered at our Midtown campus, and prior to that, they had called me and they said, Ben, we want you to preach this year. Would you be the one that teaches this year? And I, I, I just didn't feel comfortable with it. I, I prayed about it, and I just felt like, I don't, you know, I don't know. I don't really feel like I should be the one to preach. I don't, I don't feel like I have a word. I was really busy in that season also, so I kind of felt like I don't really want to do this. Uh, and there was lots going on as I entered into it. And so I said, what if we just gave some space for our young leaders to preach? What if we just, instead of the same old guys that are always up in front of the family who've been doing this for 25, 30 years, what if we let some young voices who maybe haven't had a chance to ever teach in front of that group? And I don't know if you guys were there, if you remember it. We had a session where we had six young leaders come up and they gave like five-minute sermons. Uh, and that was my favorite sermon that had ever been preached. All of the lead pastors got together afterwards and we were like, wasn't that awesome? Like, wasn't that so much more fulfilling to watch someone else do it that we'd been training and developing and leading and that we knew their story and to watch them step up and just light up the room and do an amazing job preaching? Wasn't that so much better than us doing it ourselves? You see, when I, when I was young and was a leader, I, my, my whole leadership was wrapped up in a lot of like my own ambition. It was wrapped up in kind of some gross stuff of wanting to be up front, wanting to be in front of people, all of those things. I kind of wanted to be the star every week, right? I kind of wanted to be the one. Everybody's watching me. And the older and older I get, the more I want to fade into the background and watch other leaders that we've developed and raised up be the ones that are doing the ministry and are leading in the right way. This is how the kingdom grows. This is what Jesus did. Jesus took his 12 disciples and he walked with them. But Jesus didn't just teach them. He trained them to do the things that he did. If you cover up the names of who's doing the things in Acts, 
right? If you go to Acts and you just cover up the names and you cover up Peter and you cover up Paul and you cover up the names of people, you would think that Jesus is still doing all of this stuff because he trained his leaders so well to live out their calling that they were able to get breakthrough in amazing ways. This is the call of the church. And so when we get to the end of Philippians chapter 2, as we've been journeying through in our Enduring Hope series, and we've been looking at the way that Paul complements a healthy church, Paul throws out a model that is a model, a model that all of us need to adopt, adapt, and live into. And it's this idea of who are you investing in? Who are the leaders that you are raising up? Who's prepared to take your place? I had a leader uh, who discipled me and poured into me and invested in me. And I remember the day he hired me, I sat in his office and I had left my job to go work for this man. I was prepared to like, I I wanted to be with him. I knew he was going to disciple me. I knew he was going to invest in me. When young pastors come to me and they're like, where should I go to work? What what church should I go to? I never tell them, find the biggest church. I never tell them, find the most exciting church. I tell them, find a pastor that looks like Jesus to you and get by his side. And this guy looked like Jesus to me, and I knew I could learn from him. And so I sat down in a meeting with him, and and in my first meeting with him, I'm in his office, and he's like, okay, I'm training you to replace me. And I was like, wait a minute, I just moved my whole family here to be with you. And he's like, oh, it's not anytime soon. I'm not leaving next week. I'm not leaving next year. But I just want you to know from the very beginning, I'm teaching you to do all the things that I do. And my job, if I'm successful, is not simply to get the church to function well. It's to raise up leaders to do the things that I do. During COVID, 23% of pastors in the United States of America quit their job. 70% said they wish they had quit their job. Those are true numbers. True numbers. We are losing Leaders, I just got off the phone this week with a seminary who said, I think we're going to have to shut the doors. We just don't have enough students anymore. Uh, I know of three large seminaries who've closed their door because there's not enough young people going into ministry. We're not training up leaders to become pastors. We're not training up leaders to become worship leaders. We're not training up leaders to do the things that need to be done in order to lead the church. And we're in this place where we're actually in a discipleship crisis. And the only way you solve a discipleship crisis is by discipleship. It's the only way you do it. It's the only way that it happens. And this is a new season for me and for the church. And if you've been around for a long time, you know we've been through lots of different transitions. When, when I first came here, my first Sunday here, there was like maybe 70 people in the room. It was very quickly, I learned everybody's names. I knew their story. I knew what was going on in their life. I was able to manage a relationship with about 70 people. It was a stretch for me, but I, I kind of knew everybody. Then the church began to grow and grow and grow and multiply and multiply and multiply. Right now, there are around 600 people that call Grace Marietta their church home. I wish you guys would all show up on the same Sunday, just once, besides Easter. (laughs) Besides Easter, could we just make a Sunday where we all, like a phone tree or a WhatsApp or something, where we just all, like, let's all come to church today. That'd be awesome. Uh, But there are 600 people that call it. That is way beyond what I'm able to do relationally. And I wish that I could know all 600 of everybody. I wish I could know all of the stories. I wish I could know everything that's going on. Uh, But I look around the room a lot of Sundays now, and I'm like, man, there are so many new people. 
There's a lot of folks that I don't know or I'm just meeting for the first time or I'm just learning. And so the only way that we can grow as a church and as a ministry is by discipling other leaders to step into places of leadership. The only way that we grow and develop, it's like a football team. A football team works really well because there's a head coach and that head coach focuses on the leadership of the entire organization. Deion Sanders is doing a fine job. Anybody, any of you stay up and watch that game? Thank you for coming to church after you watch that game. Well done. You are very holy and righteous. Well done. It was a late game. Uh, But Deion is the head coach, but Deion has an offensive coordinator. He has a defensive coordinator. He has a quarterback's coach. He has a linebacker's coach. He has a defensive back's coach. He's got a get-back coach. You guys know what this is? The get-back coach is just the guy that says, don't go on the field to everybody. This is his whole job. His whole job is this. You can get paid to just do this. Like just the, 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 they have all of these coaches and they develop an entire team to develop what's happening and to work out what's happening so that every leader grows and every person grows. And this is how teams hire new coaches. You know when, when, when teams are looking for a new coach, right? If the Falcons, who started off good last week, right? They got a win. Are you with me? Yeah? Any, we got two of you that are excited about that? Come on, guys. The Fal- I'm not a Falcons fan, but they could, they could use a little more support. But like, if the, if the, if the Falcons, if, if they fire their coach again, which it's been like 18 years in a row, I think they fired a coach at the end of the year. If they do it again, the first place that they look for their head coach is where? It's for an assistant that's doing a good job somewhere else. And they start to find those people, and they elevate those people, and they raise those people up. They teach them and train them every step along the way until they can lead it on their own. And I feel like we're in a place and we're in a season where for us as a church, my greatest responsibility is to raise up other leaders who can do the things that I can do. I've reached the age where I don't want to be the star anymore. I don't want to be up front anymore. I don't want to be in the middle of everything all the time. I want to raise up leaders who can lead and who can develop things. Now, the hard part of that is everybody wants the the leader. Everybody wants Deion Sanders at, at the college game day interview, right? Nobody wants, nobody, we don't even know the names of the offensive coordinator and defensive coordinator of Colorado. We don't know them. And if you do, you're, you're a big fan uh, of that team, right? And I don't think any of us have reached that point yet. Give us five weeks into the season, and then we'll be on the Dion train, and we'll know everything about that team. But I, I, like, the, the problem is everybody wants that one leader. And, and what needs to happen in healthy cultures and in healthy organizations, whether you're talking about your business, whether you're talking about your family, whether you're talking about a church, or whether you're talking about a football team, is that leaders need to be developed and trained to do the things so that they can lead. And the only way they do that is by giving opportunity. You have to give them an opportunity. You have to give them a chance. You have to step back from your own leadership and allow someone else space to lead. You have to give up something so that someone else can have something. Which, listen, I am so thankful. I promise you, and don't tell Claire this, my daughter, I promise you, Grant and Daniel could have preached a better sermon than her. Are you with me? They're really good preachers, and they've been doing it a really long time. And it was the first time she'd ever done it. But I also promise you this. Wait till Claire is Grant and Daniel's age, and she will put them under the table. I'm telling you right now. She's got more charisma right now than anybody in this entire room, right? I'm telling you, uh, give her time. And develop her. And so I'm so grateful. Salem Church of God in Dayton, Ohio, is a church of about 2,000 people. 
When I was 16 years old, we had a youth Sunday, and they invited me to preach. I preached the whole sermon, 20 minutes. It was the worst sermon that's ever been preached in the history of Christendom. Right? There was, like, it was theologically bad. I told a story about my dog peeing in the backyard. Like, it was just, there was a lot of things about it that were all over the place and bad. And after I preached, everybody there called me Benji. That's a, I, it's the only place I go in the entire world right now where old ladies kiss me on the cheek and call me Benji. Uh, but they all called me Benji. And so I, I, I got done preaching, and there was this line of sweet folks who were just like, that was so good. That was the best sermon ever. It wasn't. It, I promise you, it wasn't at all. But there was somebody back then who saw something in me and said, I see this in you. I'm going to give you a chance. I'm going to make space for this to happen, and we're going to see how you lead. This is also the same thing that Jesus did when he said, you will do greater things than I have done. That's the Son of God saying that. You will do greater things than I, I, if I'm the disciples, I'm like, I don't know about that one. That might be putting a little too much confidence in me, Jesus. Peter's like, I don't know. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure I'm just worried about the sandwich I'm getting for lunch. Like that's a, I always picture Peter as being chubby. I don't know why. Is anybody else with me? It just makes me, when I read the gospels, it makes it more fun. Peter's a little overweight. He's trying really hard, but he's, he, like, he really loves snacks. Like, I don't know what's going on with him. He doesn't work out a lot. He's sweaty all the time. I don't know. Just when I imagine that, I, I, get, a, I get a picture of Peter. I'm going to meet him in heaven one day, and I might be disappointed, or I might be spot on. Who knows? Who knows? Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, Paul starts telling the story of his team. He starts telling you the story of the leaders that he's developing and what they're doing. And this is what I love about Paul. Paul starts off as this feisty, one-man show crusader, cape flowing in the wind to live as Christ, to die as gain. He, he's just this tough guy. He's getting in arguments and fighting with everybody. He's kicking people off of his missions trips with him. He's doing all of these things that's like, my way or the highway. And then the older Paul gets, when you get to his letters when he's in prison, Paul is the sweetest shepherd of the same people he got in arguments with. He's the same shepherd. He just grows in his tenderness, and he grows in his affection, and he grows in his love for the people that he's leading. And Paul says, I don't need to be the star anymore. I don't need to be the one in the center. I'm sending Timothy. I'm sending this other leader. And when they're there, when that leader is there, he represents all that I represent. He's my ambassador. In the same way that Jesus said, disciples, go. Go into all the world, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth, and, and make disciples. Go and do that in my name. Paul is saying, I'm sending leaders to go and, on my behalf and to lead in my behalf. And then, so here's the picture of this, Philippians 2, 19. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to just pay attention to the descripting words that Paul uses to describe Timothy and Epaphroditus, all right? I hope the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon. We're in verse 19. So that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interest, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me with the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. He's in prison, remember? So he's like, I don't know when I'm getting out. I don't know if I'm ever coming back. 
I don't know if I'm ever going to be around again. So if I'm not, I'm sending Timothy who's going to do the ministry. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So let's look at this passage. Let's just shout out. What are some of the things that Paul says about Timothy? Just say them out out there. There's no one like him. That's a pretty good compliment. What else? Proven worth. Genuine concern. What else do we see? Doesn't seek his own interests. Right? He's naming off all of these things. He has served me with the gospel. He's been a servant. We've seen over and over again how Timothy is a disciple that Paul is raising up. And he's teaching him to do all of these things. I would suggest... That all of those things that Paul is saying about Timothy are actually the ways in which Paul is growing right now while he's in prison. He's learning to serve. He's learning to not seek his own interest. He's learning to seek the genuine welfare of others. And as he's learning these things and developing these things as a leader, he's passing them on to the people that he's leading. And the ones that he's leading are actually becoming like him. I said this a few weeks ago. Someone once asked me one of the most difficult questions I've ever been asked, and that is, if you're asking others to follow you, do you have a life that's worth imitating? If if you had a disciple who followed you around and became like you, would they become better? Would they grow? What would you pass on? Because you better believe it, moms and dads who are dedicating children right now, your kids are going to become like you. My son is home from college this weekend. We were watching a game the other, uh, last night, and my mom leaned over to me and said, he looks just like you when he, when he watches the game. Like, they pick up things. They learn from you. And your kids will pick up the best of you, right? There's moments when you're like, oh, I actually taught them something. That's good. They learned. They're, they're, they're like me in a good way. I, there's something positive that came out of this relationship for them. And then there's other times when they're like you in a bad way. Right? Where they snap back the way that you snap back. Where they make that face the same way that you make that face. Where when they don't get their way, they respond exactly the same way that you respond when you don't get your way. The problem with our kids is they become like us in both of our good things and our bad things. And so we want to train them up to be followers of us. Next in verse 25, it talks about Epaphroditus. It says, I thought it necessary to send you Epaphroditus, who is my brother. So Timothy is more like a son to Paul. He's a disciple. He's a young man who he's developed. Epaphroditus is like a brother. It says he's a brother. He's a fellow worker. And I like this, a fellow soldier. And your messenger and minister to my need. So Epaphroditus is the one who was sent by the church in Philippi to go care for Paul while Paul was in prison. It would be like, I, I, uh, I was in Florida this week. I took a little mini vacation, uh, and I was in Florida. The beaches are nice right now. It was really great down there. I got some time with family. I led a little retreat down there, had a great time. Uh, it would be like I got arrested down there, right, for preaching the gospel, right? It wasn't, a bad, it wasn't a bad thing. It wasn't anything shady. I was just preaching the gospel and, you know, Florida. And so, like, something happened down there, and... And, and then all of a sudden, we were like, okay, well, somebody's got to go there, down there and make sure that Ben's okay. Who are we going to send from Grace Marietta? And everybody's like, okay, let's, let's send Graham. Graham is big and tall, and he's a little scary. Let's send him. Let's make sure he's there. He can talk some sense into Ben. He can help relay any messages that are there. And so there's somebody that was sent. This is what Epaphroditus was. He was sent from Philippi to Rome, which isn't an easy trip. 
So it would be like, all right, Graham, get on your horse, get on your donkey, and let's go. Right? It's, a, it's a long journey. It means that Epaphroditus, who's a wealthy man and is doing really well for himself, gave up his business, gave up his job, gave up everything to serve both the church and to serve Paul. That's a good brother. Are you with me? He loved Paul. He cared for Paul. He loved the church. He wanted to take care of him. And so he says, uh, for, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Something happened on the journey for Epaphroditus where he became sick. Indeed, he was ill. He was near death, but God had mercy on him. And not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. For I am more eager to send them, therefore, that you may rejoice in seeing him again, that you may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So on this journey, somewhere along the way, Epaphroditus gets sick. I don't know what happened. I don't know what went on. COVID. I don't know what, I don't know what he got. Something happened on the journey. He was in the hospital. Things weren't looking good. Now he's doing better. As he heals up, he's going to go back to Philippi. And Paul is saying, as I send this brother back, I want you to honor him. I want you to recognize what he's done. And I also want you to know that I've been investing in him and I've been pouring into him and I've been discipling him and I'm going to send him back. Here's what I believe, guys. I believe that everyone, every single person in this room needs a Paul, needs a Timothy, Timothy, and needs an Epaphroditus in their life. You need a Paul who is someone who has been where you haven't been. Someone who is older, someone who has some leadership gifts, someone who has something to offer you, someone who can disciple you, someone who can pour into you, someone who can care for you. You need a father and a mother figure in your faith. And for many of you, like me, you are lucky enough that your father and mother are those people. Like when I have challenges in, around my faith, when I'm struggling, I call my mom and dad. And I trust their wisdom. They love Jesus. They walk with Jesus. Uh, for others, we've got to find that person. Who is that person? I'm so grateful that there's been leaders in my life, some of you in this room right now, who have been where I haven't been, who have children who have gone to college, who are coaching me through how to send my kids off, who have, uh, have, have, have lived a different kind of life than I have, who are able to train me and walk beside me and care for me and disciple me in parenting, in marriage, in uh, pastoring, in all of these things. I'm so thankful that there are leaders who have done that for me. I'm so thankful that there are pastors that I know who've been pastoring much longer than I have, who've been in a pulpit for 50 years and not 30 years, who are able to disciple me and pour into me and invest in me. And the question that we have is, do you have a Paul? Do you have a father or a mother figure in the faith? And if this room is like most rooms, the majority of us would say no. We don't. We've never found that person. We've never had that person. Scripture says, for we don't, we have many teachers, but not very many fathers. So there's a lot of us. So you've got a lot of people who've done what I'm doing right now for you, who've taught, who've given you a sermon, who've given you a message. What you don't have is a lot of fathers and mothers who will walk beside you, care for you, disciple you, stay with you, be with you, invest in you, care for you, love you, be that person that you call when you're in crisis. There's not a lot of fathers and mothers. And so here's my suggestion to all of us. If we didn't get it ourselves and we really wanted it, why don't we do it for somebody else? The best critique of bad is the practice of something better. 
And if we've not experienced that in our lives, like this is one of the reasons I have so much passion for ministry and so much passion for discipleship is because when I was a young leader, I was desperate for somebody to take me under their arms and to coach me and to train me and develop me and to teach me. And I could not find that person. And so I want to be that person for the next generation. Listen to this. You are always best prepared to serve the person that you used to be. That's why God gave you your experiences. That's why he's given you your hard times. That's why some of you have experienced difficulty in your life is because there is a preparation for you to serve the person that you used to be because you know what you needed and you just give that to somebody else. And so if you're a person out there who is saying, I never had a Paul, I never had a father or mother who cared for me spiritually, then find somebody and do it. My favorite moment ever with my father and I love my dad. My dad, I tell, I tell people this all the time. My dad is one of the most kindest, most, gener- most generous. I get, I'll get choked up talking about my dad because I love my dad so much. My dad came to our home. We were living in Louisville, Kentucky. My dad used to come whenever we needed things fixed um, because the one thing my dad didn't disciple me in is house repair. Uh, he, he did, I think he tried. It was not his fault. It was mine. Uh, he tried very hard. He tried to pass that on to the next generation. It skipped a generation. Uh, and unfortunately, it has not landed with my sons either. Uh, but I, so when things were messed up or broken in the house, my dad would come and he would just fix it. It's the way my dad showed love. And any of you guys have a father like that who just, he shows up and he just starts fixing everything. And it's his way of saying, I love you all. This is how I'm going to serve you. That's, that's my dad. So he came to the house. We moved into an old house in Louisville, Kentucky. He's fixing everything. And he's just around. And at the dinner table, my boys were little at that age. They were I, probably, I think like six and eight, maybe eight and ten. They were, they were kind of old enough to start understanding things, but still pretty young. And every night at the dinner table, we would just have a prayer time. And we would ask the kids some questions about their day, and we would pray for them. And then every night before bedtime, I would open up the Bible with my kids, and I would read the Bible, and, and I would just do the best I could to teach them the Bible. And, and we would do a story time together, and we'd talk about the Scripture. And we wore out that Jesus Storybook Bible. We just wore that thing out, going through it over and over and over again with my kids. And, and um, I had done all of this. I put the kids to bed. I was in the kitchen. I, I think I was just cleaning some things up in the kitchen, and my dad walked in, and my dad had tears in his eyes. I've never seen my father cry. I never saw my dad cry at my grandma's funeral, at my grandpa's funeral. I've never seen, and I was like, oh no, mom's left him. Like, terrib- something's terrible's happened. Somebody was in an accident. And my dad looked at me, and he said, I'm sorry I never did that for you. I didn't know how. It was the most honest, humble, and beautiful thing my father's ever said to me. And so for some of you, you didn't receive it, but you can still give it. You just do the best that you can. That's the great thing about discipleship. It's not about perfection. It's just about progress. So I'm not trying to get everything right. I'm not trying to do everything perfectly. I'm just simply trying to love and serve the very best that I can. All of us need a Paul. The second thing that we all need is a Timothy. Who is that person that you are investing in? Who's that person that is a generation behind you that you are discipling, that you are investing in, that you are pouring into? Who's the person that calls you when they're stuck? Who's the person that reaches out to you when they're struggling? 
Who's the person that needs you to pray with them, to teach them, to train them? Uh, I'm so grateful. I, I've got a friend named Rob Spaulding. Rob was a pastor at the first church that I ever worked at. And, and, uh, and, and Rob has been a, a, a good friend for me for a very, very long time. And his family has cared for me, and they've loved me for a very long time. When I first got married, I can remember there were a thousand uh, nights where I would sit on Rob's patio on his porch swing, and I would just be like, how do you do this husband thing? I, I am, whatever I'm trying is not working. Like, what do you do? How do you, and, and I can remember Rob just pouring wisdom into me, just caring for me, just talking to me, just sharing from his experience. I remember him praying for me. All of those things, I became a Timothy to him because he just kept investing in me. And a lot of times we're like, I don't know who, to, I don't know who that person is. If you want to know who your Timothy is, look behind you. Right? It doesn't have to be the sharpest person in the room. It doesn't have to be the most gifted, the most talented. It's the person who's available. Who's the person that's just around? And moms and dads, can I suggest that your Timothy always starts with your sons and daughters? Uh, my number one responsibility on this earth is to raise up my kids to know Jesus. That's more important than my job that's more important than my career. That's more important than anything else I will ever do. My one prayer for my entire life has been, Lord, if I screw up everything else, don't let me screw up being a dad. Teach me to disciple. Teach me to love well. Teach me to serve well. Teach me to teach my kids how to know Jesus. Teach me to pray with them. Teach me to talk to them. Teach me to have difficult conversations with them. Teach me to not want to be loved by them so much that I'm not afraid to teach them and train them. Teach me to care for them. Teach me to invest in them. All of those things. We all need a Timothy. And we need to find who that person is and invest in those people. And then lastly, we need an Epaphroditus. Who's your brother or sister? Who's that person that's at the same stage as you, who, who well, it's, it's kind of like, I just need somebody by me. I need somebody who will care for me when I'm hurting. I need somebody to be around. I need somebody who will be close. I need somebody that I can text or call. And I'm so grateful in this church, I have so many brothers who have done that for me, who have been close to me, who've cared for me, who've walked with me, who've stood beside me. It's one of the most beautiful things about the church is this is why the church gathers together is because it's not so you can hear a message. It's not so that we can just sing a few songs. It's so that we can become a family. It's so that we can have fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters. Like the church is supposed to be the family the way God intended family to be. It's supposed to be the place where you find spiritual fathers and mothers. It's supposed to be the place where you find brothers and sisters who can walk with you in the spirit, who can teach you and train you and love you and care for you. And it's a beautiful thing when you find those things. Uh, man, I, I, I've just talked. I haven't even looked at my notes for a really long time. Uh, I, I want to teach you a tool. Here's what I want to do. I want to teach you a tool. Um, this is a tool that I learned from an organization that I worked for around 10 years ago. This is a tool that if you are a boss and you have a, a team that reports to you, this will work for you. Thank you. I, 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 I'm telling you, thank you. Put this into practice. You guys can thank me later. It's all there. It's good stuff. It's practical. It's how anybody learns how to do anything. It's how we train people to learn any skill. It's how we train people to replace other people in a job. Uh, and then secondly, I would just say, if you are a parent and you're trying to figure out how do I do this discipleship thing, this is how you do it. This is how you start. Uh, and so can we just show that first screen? Uh, it's just called the, the Leadership Square. 
And, and each of these four segments of the square are segments where there is a posture that you inhabit, there's a skill that you teach, and there's a way that you lead in each of these squares. So the top part of that square, what we always want to start with is this process of I do, you watch, and then I would add we talk. Right? So when I am training somebody else to be a preacher, I don't instantly say, how about you preach next Sunday? That would be a, probably a mistake. Right? I would start by saying, hey, I'm going to preach this Sunday. I want you to take some notes around some things that you saw me do or not do that you thought were good or were helpful or not helpful. And let's dialogue about it. Let's talk about it. Let's, if you were to teach the same passage that I'm teaching today, how would you do it differently? And you just talk about it. So I do the work. Somebody else is watching and learning in that process. The second stage and the posture that you take is I do, you help. So I don't know if you've noticed that our staff learns how to preach by doing the ministry moment and the offering moment and the announcement moment. Have you noticed that? That's how I train leaders to teach because it's a small segment. What they'll do is they, the, the, the song will end. They'll grab that mic. They'll come up here. They'll preach a mini sermon. And it's always good. Are you with me? They always do an amazing job. They're discerning what God is doing in the room. They're paying attention to how God is at work. And they're learning how to lead an audience. They're learning how to pray. They're learning how to follow the Spirit. And they're learning to do all of that without notes and preparation. My one criteria for our staff when they do that is you're not allowed to prepare. You just, whatever God is doing in the room, that's what you're responding to. And so you're responding to what's happening in the room. And that's a, I'm still preaching the message. I'm still teaching, but they're helping and they're learning along the way. And so it's still an I do, you help. And then I would add, we talk on the other end of that. The third set, stage is you do and I help, right? And so that person actually does the sermon at that time. They actually preach. They actually do the message. And I may be the one that does the ministry moment, or I may do the benediction. And I'm sitting over here taking notes on how do I help them, and what can I train them in, and what, what are some, some skills that they need to learn, all of those things. And then lastly is you do and I watch, or I would change that to you do and I cheer. It's delegation. I'm handing it off, and I'm saying you go and do it now. This is how we train anybody to do anything, right? If, if we were talking about, all right, how do we set up the room on Sundays? It starts with a, hey, I'm going to set up the chairs in the back. I'm going to show you the pattern in which the chairs are set up, and I want you to do this. And then the next week, maybe you're doing it, and I'm helping. Some of these are really easy processes. I can teach it in a week. I can teach you to do it in a minute. If you're a business leader, you learn that automating things make things go faster and easier. And so there's certain things you want to either delegate or automate so that you can send to somebody else. And it's really quick, and you can learn to do that really quick. There's other things that are difficult and challenging and hard. And this takes months or even years to disciple people into. And so sometimes that I do, you watch is a two-day process, an hour-long process, a two-week process. Sometimes it's a 15-year process. It just depends on the skill. It depends on the leader. It depends on what you're doing. So I want to give you just one more thing to, to kind of double-click on this tool because I think this is helpful. Uh, and I, I want you, can we just put that square back up? Yeah. So here's what happens. Uh, if you are a follower, here's what happens. You can imagine if I were to draw a stick figure. Is this going to beep at me? A little bit, right here. I just drew a stick figure right there, kind of walking across that land. This is what happens. On that top space, if you are a follower, what, what you are is you are confident 
and completely incompetent. Right? That's what you are. It's like every freshman that goes off to college. Right? I've just sent two away. They think they understand the whole world. They are idiots. Right? They don't know anything. They've got nothing figured out, but they think they know everything. So imagine a little stick figure kind of walking across that top line, just excited, confident. I got this. I've figured out everything. I know how to do that. What that person needs is directive leadership. They need you to tell them what to do. This is what you do. This is how you do it. Right? Very direct. Very specific. Very direct. This is what Paul did with Timothy. I need you to do this. This is what Jesus did to the disciples. You're going to go to a city. You're going to take nothing with you. When you go into the city, you're going to welcome people. If they welcome you in, you stay and they become persons of peace. If not, you wipe all the dust off your feet and you leave. Jesus, that's very specific directions, right? It's very directive. He just tells them, this is exactly what you do. Go to the city. Here's the name of the city you're going to. Don't take a bag. Don't take a cloak. Go into the city. Find somebody. He's very specific about what you're supposed to do. The problem for the confident, incompetent person is they eventually walk right off that ledge. Right? They're just, do, 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 do. ah! And there's a falling down into D2 and L2. And in D2, what happens is they, they're unenthusiastic and incompetent, right? Have you ever met this person who they're really excited about doing something until it hits the, it, it gets really difficult, and all of a sudden they're like, I can't do this. This is too hard. This is difficult. I've fallen off the edge. I've failed. And now I'm not enthusiastic, and I realize I can't do this. Uh, my kids, every one of my kids that I've taught to drive have learned this lesson. They thought like, ah, oh, this is easy. I can drive. I've sat in a car. I've played pole position at the video game store. I've, like, I know how to do this. And then you actually start driving, and they're like, oh, no, I don't know how to drive. And you can see it in their eyes. And as a, as a leader, you're like, oh, no, they don't know how to drive, right? <laughs> and I don't have that brake in the passenger side on my car. And so there's this moment where they realize, I can't do this. And what they need in that moment is they need vision. They need somebody to walk with them. They need somebody to give them a vision for what they could be. And they need a coach. They need somebody who's saying, you can do this. Here's what you need to do. Hey, you went into that turn way too fast. I had two different sons that I trained to drive. One went into every turn too fast. One turned every turn as slow as any human could possibly. It was like a 105-year-old grandma driving every time I rode with one son. And the other was like training for F1. Right? It was like a completely different experience. Um, I was way more afraid of my Formula One driving son than my other son. And so you, you, you talk about, hey, I, I got to give you some vision. I got to coach you up. I got to train you in how to do this. And then uh, uh, when we get to D3, L3, you have, these leaders have their feet under them again. They've fallen, they failed, but they're starting to learn. And so they have a growing confidence. They're like, okay, I think I can do some of this. I think I'm learning to do some of this. And what they need there is they need a pastor. And instead of directive leadership, they need consensus leadership. And so it's no longer, I tell you what to do and you go do it. It's, hey, what do you think? What do you think we should do? What do you think we should teach on next week? How do you think we should talk about this text? How do you think we should do this? And it becomes a moment where you're training them by building consensus. 
And then lastly, when you get to, the, to stage four, it, it's the, the end is in sight. So they're, they're feeling comfortable. They're feeling confident. They're feeling like, I can do this. I can train others to do this. And what you do at that point is you delegate it. You send them out and you say, you go do it. I trust you. I believe in you. You're able to do that. But it's not abandonment. I'm here if you need me. Right? So, so I'll, I'll name one of my weaknesses in this as a disciple maker and as a leader is I want this process to happen really fast. Are you with me? I want to train somebody to do all of these things in a really quick time. And so that leads me to um, give them directive leadership and then abandon them. Anybody else with me? Like you, you're, you're trying to teach somebody how to do something. You're trying to train them and how to do it. And so you tell them what to do and then you run off somewhere else. That's not discipleship. That's abandonment. Discipleship is staying with them when they fall. Discipleship is pastoring them when they're growing. The discipleship is coaching them when they're learning. Discipleship is all of these things. And so the question for us today is, who are you investing in? Is there anybody in your life that you're doing this towards? What are you training? And, and, and let's start with this. What's the thing that you could train somebody else to do that you do well and successfully? For many of you, that's not going to be preaching. That's not the thing that you have. Um, we've got people, we, we actually train all of our volunteer teams. Sometimes we do a really good job at that. Sometimes we do a poor job at that. We're trying to do better at all of that. But as we train our volunteers, sometimes I sit in the back of the room during those trainings and I'm like, oh, I'm so thankful this person is doing the training and not me because I'm so bad at that. I'm learning from them. Uh, the people that stand at the front door and shake hands, God bless you. You are so holy and wonderful and good. I can't do any of that. I'm shy and I'm introverted and I make every conversation when I meet somebody new awkward. And I, I really, I try my best. I'm just like, hey, how's the weather? Thanks for coming to church today. I, I try my best. If, if, I've had, if I've had an awkward moment with you, I apologize. That's not my gift. I'm not training greeters in, at our church. No one wants me doing that. That's not the way it works. And so what, what's the thing that you do that you can train others to? And sometimes we think it's got to be this really holy and righteous and amazing thing. I got to teach people how to go stand on the corner and preach. Uh, I got to teach people to, and, and sometimes it's the easiest things. I'm really good at hospitality, and I want to train somebody to have people in their home and have a really fun dinner with them. And I'm good at that, and I want to train somebody else on how to do that. Hospitality is a gift of God. It's a beautiful thing when it's lived out. And so don't negate the gift that you've been given to yourself. What's that thing that you do really well, and what does it look like for you to invest in somebody else? And here's what I would say. I know some of you are sitting there thinking right now, I don't know who to ask, and it's weird to just walk up to somebody. You are right. That would be weird, right? Just to walk up. I just find somebody in the room that you don't know and be like, I would like to teach you how to do this. That, that would be a little weird. But here's what I would suggest to you. Start praying. Start saying to the Lord, Lord, would you send somebody into my life that I can disciple? Would you send somebody into my life that I can train and develop? Would you send somebody into my life? And then I just want you to have the eyes of Jesus as you're walking around in your daily life. And just see, is there somebody that's with you? Is there somebody that's around that's asking for your help? Is there somebody that you can invest in? And so here's your homework. You got church homework this week, guys. Uh, when I'm preaching, you get homework sometimes. Uh, here's your homework. I want you to think through, who is your Paul? Who is your Timothy? 
And who is your Epaphroditus? And if any of those spaces are blank, I want you to start praying. And I want you to say, Lord, would you, would you bring this person into my life? And just have eyes to see. Just be aware of where the Lord is working. I, I believe this without a shadow of doubt. If I could tell you one thing that I will double down on over and over again in my ministry, I may get a lot of things wrong, but I, I believe I'm right in this one. God is good. And he wants good things for you. And when we ask him for bread, he doesn't give us rocks. And so start asking. Jesus, I need somebody in my life who can guide me and help me. Jesus, I want to disciple somebody else. I want to grow and I want to develop the kingdom. I, I would also say, if, if you're not doing that, we've got some great areas to do that because I'm looking around in the room right now and I'm seeing a bunch of folks that are volunteering at LUG and are finding students to invest in and pour into. That They're finding uh, uh, down in, downstairs, they're finding kids to invest in and pour into. And so if you want to disciple the next generation and are saying, I'm not quite sure how, come talk to Anna, go talk to Grant, go talk to Daniel, and we will find places that will help you and put you in positions so that you can invest in the next generation. And I know this has been kind of technical, and you didn't really come to get a square or a tool today, and some of you are like, this is not super holy, Ben. Uh, This is how discipleship works. This is the practical ways in which discipleship is lived out. And if we're going to be a church that's going to raise up the next generation, we need to be trained in how to do it. And this is a really practical way for us to do that. So I'm going to invite the band to come up. We're going to go to a time of communion. As you go to communion today, I just want you to thank Jesus. I just thank him that he's good. I was just, as we were worshiping, I just felt like there was this real sweet spirit in the room of just God is good. He's with us and he's for us. And so as you go and take the juice and, and take the bread, just simply today, just thank him. Thank him for the cross. Thank him for the resurrection. Thank him for the good things in your life. Maybe this week is a, is a week to say thank you that you've given me so many Pauls and Timothys and Epaphroditus. Thank you for them. As, as we were singing some of those songs and, and as we were praying during child dedication, thanks for leading us in that, Anna. But I was just thanking the Lord for my kids. Like, thank you that you gave me the gift of these three amazing little ones. And thank you for the blessings that they've brought into my life. And so I always think about communion as an opportunity for us just to reflect. To be quiet and listen to God and reflect and and thank him for things that are going on in our life. So we're going to open up space. The band's going to lead us and we'll wrap up. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would teach us to raise up a team like Paul did. And I pray that this would not just happen for the pastors and for the leaders, but it would happen in every area of the church. I pray that we would develop a spiritual family with fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who care and who invest and who love and who give and who share and who lay down their lives for the sake of others. And I do pray, Lord, in the same way that we prayed seven years ago, that the evidence of our faithfulness will be the life of our children. I pray right now that in that student area over there that you are raising up young men and young women who are going to change the world for your glory. I pray for the kids that are downstairs right now in the nursery. I pray that some of them are going to be pastors, that some of them are going to be missionaries, that some of them are going to be lawyers and doctors and healers, and and they're going to set people free, and they're going to bring sight to the blind, and they're going to do all the things that you did. And when they look back on their life, they're going to say, I got something at Grace Marietta that was good. And so, Jesus, I ask you for that right now. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you raise up the next generation of leaders? Would you empower us? Would you teach us? Would you guide us? Would you direct us? Would you give us humility as we do this? 
And would you give us wisdom as we do this? We thank you, Jesus. It's in your name we pray.